If you have a Bible, could you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians. I think what I'm going to do is back up a little bit into chapter 3 and read some of the verses that we were looking at last week and then get into the verses that we're going to be focusing on this morning, which is verses 1 to 6 in 2 Corinthians 4. So I think I'm going to back up to, um, uh, yeah, let's go back to verse 12. Let's go back to verse 12, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Paul says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so we come now to the verses that we're going to look at this morning, and I want you to notice the word therefore. Paul says therefore, because of what he has just talked about, and what we talked about last week, and even what came before all of that, he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think about that verse and what is packed into that verse. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray, O oh God, as we thought last week of from glory to glory, we are being transformed. And we just pray that in some way this morning, by your spirit, through your word, you would just give us another glimpse of the glory of your son and of your glory, that it would impact us, that it would change us. That would do another, another step in that process of transforming us, God. Whatever way we need to hear 
your word this morning. I pray that you would speak to each of us. And I ask that you would just give me strength and grace and mercy from yourself to do what you have called me to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to take this passage, verses 1 to 6 in 2 Corinthians 4, and I'm going to break it into two sections, and then each section is going to have two sections, so it's like a two-by-two, I guess, sort of outline. Um, We'll think about it that way, but there's, there's, there's two main things then. So the main first main thing is this, the motivation in ministry. As Paul writes this, he talks about his motivation and so there's motivation in ministry in the ministry that god had called him to and you and i even though we're not called to the exact same thing that paul was called to similar things we are all called to ministry and service those of us that know christ and so we can relate with or draw on that motivation that he had obviously to seek to walk with that ourselves and so that's the first main section the second one is the light of christ the light of christ we're going to think about two aspects of the light of Christ when we get there. So let's think about this motivation and ministry, first of all. And as I said, I'm going to take that point. I'm going to break it into two. And so here are the two things that I see or that, that spoke to my heart as I read these verses and studied these verses. Motivation and ministry, number one, perseverance. The, the motivation to persevere. What does it mean to persevere? It means to continue on a path or a course of action, even when it is difficult, even when at times it seems like from our perspective, it is impossible for us to do this. I'm not gonna be able to do this. I can't do this. And yet perseverance, we go forward on that path or on that course. That's what perseverance is. Even when it is difficult, we keep going. And I see that in, in the first verse of chapter four, and you find it all through second Corinthians as Paul writes this letter. You see it in the beginning, you see it here, you see it at the end of this letter, as Paul has, is, is dealing with and opening up with, in parts of this book here, the adversity and the opposition and the difficulty that he had gone through as a servant of Jesus Christ, and yet he's gonna persevere, and he's gonna keep going. And so I highlighted the word therefore at the beginning of chapter four, and so coming back to that verse right here again, he says, therefore, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy we do not lose heart what is this ministry that he's talking about it's the ministry that we talked about last week the ministry of the new covenant the ministry that is of the spirit the holy spirit he mentions that in chapter 3 and verse 8 the ministry which is of righteousness chapter 3 and verse 9 the righteousness of christ although it is not specified in that verse that is clearly what is in his mind there the ministry of righteousness through christ through the gospel what christ has done for us dying and rising from the dead paul says i've got this ministry in other words i have a ministry of hope as opposed to or versus the ministry of the law which was the things that we looked at last week it was condemnation and it was death and it was all of those things paul says i've got something so much better to talk about than that and so that is one of the things that is motivating paul this ministry of the new covenant which is better it is a ministry of liberty which means freedom and i think specifically in the context freedom from law right 
freedom from the oppression of law and, and, and the demand of law and, and, and the expectation of, of somehow, and of course law was never given, we understand, as something that we should follow all these things and we're going to get to heaven. That was never the, the point of the law. God gave the law really to two things mainly, to reflect his holiness and his character to us, and secondly, to show us that we can't do it. We can't measure up. And we can try and try and try, but ultimately the law was the schoolmaster, as Paul describes it, to bring us to Christ, to bring us to the point where we realize, I can't do this. I can't keep the law. I can't live holy enough. And then the light of Christ shines into that, right, that, that confusion and that struggle. And this is kind of where Paul's going in this whole passage here. So he says, this ministry, it is better. It is a ministry of liberty, going back to the verses that we read last week. And then there was the idea of the glory, right, the glory of God, the glory. A far greater glory than the glory of Sinai and the glory that that, that was revealed there, this, this whole new covenant, this new ministry, this thing in Christ is just so much more awesome than any of that. And, and here's the thing, and I ended on this last week. The great thing is that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, will one day be glorified with him. Isn't that amazing? But that is the destiny that we have to be glorified with Jesus Christ. And so it's because of this ministry that Paul has, is motivated since we have this ministry. And then he says this, as we have received mercy, as we have received mercy. We thought a lot about mercy this morning in the Lord's Supper, and it was wonderful to meditate on it and think of the mercy of our God. And there's no doubt in my mind that Paul's reflecting on the mercy that God showed in his life in saving him and calling him, and Paul's very aware of his unworthiness to this calling. It, but yet here God in his mercy has called him and brought him to this place of ministry and service for him. And so I think he's reflecting back as he talks about the mercy of God in his salvation. But he's also, I think, thinking about the mercy of God in terms of this, to strengthen him in the face of adversity and hardship in ministry. God is being merciful to carry him and to give him the strength to get going. Just for a moment, we're going to come right back to these verses. But if you go to chapter 1 and verse 8, in chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, brothers and sisters, he says, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. We're not given the particular details of what was going on there. But Paul's basically saying we were so so burdened, so we were in such a place of hardship, despaired even of life. Some of you know that feeling, right? To be in a place where you just maybe almost feel like, I can't do this, God. I just wish it was over. I'm not saying that Paul was suicidal. That's not at all what the thought is there, but it's just the literal burden of life just to keep going was so hard in that situation. If we were to go to chapter 11, we won't go there, but if we were to go to chapter 11, Paul's he defends his apostleship to these people, some of them that were being critical towards him, and we're actually critiquing him on whether, you know, and, and in chapter 11, he starts listing the hardships and the adversities. He was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was all these things he lists through and, and in perils and in perils and in perils. All of that, what is Paul saying when he says, as we have received mercy, God has given us the mercy to keep going. It's only by the mercy of God and the grace of God that I can do what I'm doing and I just love it. 
because he says this, therefore we do not lose heart. Some of your translations will put it this way, we don't faint. The, the, the thought there literally is of fainting or of losing courage. It is more than a physical thing. It is not so much about physically fainting, and, but it is more about emotionally, spiritually, psychologically getting to a point where I just can't do it anymore. And we lose courage. And as if Paul, it's as if Paul's saying that I want to quit the New Living Translation. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. It simply puts it this way. Therefore, we never give up. We don't give up. We keep going because of the ministry that I have, the message that I have, the hope that is in it, the glory that is coming in it, the freedom that is in it, all of these things, and the mercy that God has saved me and has called me in. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking towards. So I'm not going to give up. I know I've shared this here before in the past. There's a movie I'm not going to mention the name of it. It's a war movie, and in, in, in one of the scenes, incredibly realistic, and the soldiers are pinned down by enemy fire, and they want to go forward, and the, and the leader, the, the commander, he stands up, and he stands up with the bullets flying around, and he's yelling at his men, get up, get up, get up, go forward, go forward. Paul's saying, therefore, we never give up. Even when I feel like it, even when I'm afraid, when I'm overwhelmed, I go forward, and it's no glory to us. It is the glory to him, Paul says, as we have received mercy, therefore we do not lose heart. It's like he's saying the only way I can go forward is by the mercy and the grace of God. I feel that every day. I feel it like never, ever before in my life. I feel like I have no strength. I have no confidence, I have no ability, and there's a part of me, if I followed my feelings, I would stay in that ditch, pinned down by the enemy, but the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God compels me. It's like he's saying, not yelling at me like the guy in the movie, but grabbing me and touching me gently saying, keep going, keep going, don't give up. No credit to us, no credit to any of us, right? When we persevere through hardship and adversity, the glory goes to God. Matthew Henry commenting on this verse, he says, the best of men would faint if they did not receive mercy from God. And that mercy which has helped us out and helped us on, we may rely upon to help us even to the end. I love that quote. And so Paul is motivated in his ministry, his perseverance to go forward, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, that comes out all through this letter. And then secondly, he gets into the issue of integrity. Motivation in ministry and the idea of operating in integrity in his service for the Lord. Verse 2, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Why does he bring that up? Because some of the people in Corinth were questioning his credibility. Hard to believe, isn't it? If you ever get uh, falsely accused or criticized by people and you think, man, like all I'm trying to do is live for God, think about Paul. Beyond that, think about Jesus, right? 
And, and, he, and so here is Paul now, as he, as he, there's part of this letter where there's a defense of his, the credibility of his ministry and in there. And so that's why I think he highlights what he does in verse 2. And so he talks about basically the integrity of his ministry for the Lord. Let me give you a definition of the word integrity. I think if I said, what is integrity? Most of you could kind of get it, but it sometimes is helpful to read a definition. So let's hear, here's a definition. Integrity is the practice of being honest and showing a consistent adherence to strong moral and ethical principles. The word is from the Latin integer, meaning whole or complete. So integrity is the inner sense of wholeness deriving from qualities such as honesty and consistency of character. One may judge that others have integrity to the extent that they act according to the values, beliefs, and principles that they claim to hold. And in a sense, kind of what Paul is saying, if you could summarize verse 2, is it's everything we're doing in our ministry for the Lord is being done in integrity. We have renounced the hidden things of shame. We have rejected the hidden things of shame. What is he talking about here? In, in, the, in the worship of the temples, the pagan temples, that the Corinthians would be very familiar with in their city, a lot of them and some of the biggest ones in the empire, in those practices, there was the use of magic and deception to convince or to frighten people, whatever it was, somehow to motivate people into submission to the worship of that God. And those, the priests that led in those, in those places, in those temples, took advantage of people in whatever way they could. There were things that went on in those pagan practices, and unfortunately, even in the history of the church, we see this happening as those who should have led with integrity have not led with integrity. And even today, we see it in circles and ministry circles where people have lost their integrity in their faithfulness to God. But sometimes the, the, the thing that they want is power, right, over people, or influence over people, the control of people. Sometimes it is the motivation of money and wealth to get out of people, right, those under their authority, so to speak, to draw that out of them. Sometimes it leads to immoral immorality and immoral favors, right? All of these things are examples of abuse, abusing the place of leadership in some kind of uh, religious order, or here specifically in the service of Christ. Sadly, it was happening even in the early church. The false teachers that Paul comes up against that are spoken about, that Peter speaks about, were doing these very things in the name of Christ. And it happens today too, doesn't it? But Paul basically is saying in verse 2, not us, not us. We're not like that. We do not manipulate God's word or spin the truth in some way to gain any benefit for ourselves. We simply plain and straight teach the truth of God's word, whether it is positive, like you want to hear it, or whether it is negative, you may not want to hear it, but it's God's word and it's truth. And he says, well, that's what we've done. That's what we are presenting. And, and he is defending his, his ministry here, the motivation of his ministry to walk in integrity and to serve in integrity before Jesus Christ. And so he says, commending ourselves, he says, commending ourselves, what? Two, two things, to every man's conscience, and then this, in the sight of God. To, to commend themselves, literally that thought there of commending means to, to prove or to show. It's like Paul saying, I want, I want you to take a look. 
on our life, and on our ministry. And he says, to every man's conscience, the conscience of people to be able to discern between good and bad, to have a judgment. What is he saying here? He says, I want you to judge my integrity. You go ahead. You take a look at my life. You take a look at the way I have served Christ. You, you judge, you discern. I'm, I'm commending myself, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. You take a look, and, and it goes to what? It goes to the credibility of his testimony as a servant of Jesus Christ. But he's putting it back to them. And he's saying others are watching us, and others are judging and discerning what? The integrity of our life. So, so we can take that specific thing that Paul's doing here, and we can apply it to every one of us, can't we? As followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a, there, there is a time and a place to say, I don't care what people think. <laughs> I've done that sometimes. I've thought that way sometimes. And sometimes it's kind of legitimate, right? If we're standing on something that we know clearly is, is truth and we're surrendered to God and what we're doing and people may be judging us for that and that's partly what's going on even as Paul writes this letter but it's like I don't care what people think and, and so Paul could at times maybe operate that right way right so why in the world then is he saying you guys judge what does it matter what people think it matters because of our testimony and our credibility as servants of Jesus Christ. So if I go into my workplace and I don't care what people think, I'm going to be, I'm going to, you know, and we're, we're loud and rude and outrageous and all that. What kind of a testimony is that for Jesus Christ? And, and so again, it's not a compulsion of law. It's not a compulsion that I'm accountable to people, but it's this. I have a responsibility as a follower of Christ, as a minister of Christ, if you will, as a servant of Christ to have a testimony that reflects integrity to the people around me. It's very important in our walk. And so it's not that we're necessarily so worried about what people think. It's that we want to reflect Christ well. We understand that, I think, right? And he goes to then the sight of God, every man's conscience in the sight of God. There's the righteous judge. There's the one who ultimately is going to judge him. Here, here, God is the one who sees the inward integrity of his heart. People can only see the outside. There's a lot that can be seen on the outside, but there's a lot that we can cover up on the inside. But God sees the inside. God looks to the integrity. He sees the, the heart. And so where the first one is credibility as servants of, of Jesus, the second one is accountability as servants of Jesus, accountability to God. We are accountable to him. We will answer to him. There's a judgment that is coming. There's a judgment that's coming for the lost. There's a judgment that's coming for the followers of Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. That day is coming. Ultimately, what is Paul kind of getting at here? If I could sort of summarize it, maybe one word that captures some of what Paul's driving at here. It's the word, and we hear it a lot today, transparency, right? It's saying, I just want to be transparent in front of you. You, you, every man's conscience, you look at my life and my testimony and, and see if there's a credibility there. And ultimately, the ultimate transparency is that God looks in and sees through us and knows everything that's going on in our lives. And he knows the motivation of our hearts. And that is a humbling thing. But Paul's basically saying, we have no hidden agenda. We have no hidden motive. 
We're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing it for Christ. So that's motivation and ministry. Now let's get into the second, I think, kind of main thing that I saw in these verses or themes sort of that this one now begins to pick up on where we left off at the end of chapter three. And it is this idea of the light of Christ. And it is tied to the glory of the Lord, the glory of God, the glory of Christ that we talked about last week. So in verses three and four, he says, but even if our gospel, the good news that we share is veiled, it is veiled and that veil goes back, of course, to the veil of Moses and he's tying these metaphors together. It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, here it is, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the light that he's going to talk about here. The NIV renders it this way. I like the, NI, the way the NIV renders this phrase. It says, the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. I thought that kind of nailed it in a more specific way. What, what is that light then? What is that light that he is talking about? How, how would we describe it? I think it is the truth of the gospel. There's so much packed into the gospel. I realize it's simple. Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. That is the essence of the gospel, but there's so much in it, really. The truth that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ came from heaven. He is the son of God. He was made human. He lived with us. He lived among us. He was rejected. He suffered. He was crucified. He felt pain. He walked through that and he died. He literally died on a cross, crucified to atone for our sin. But the gospel message doesn't end there, of course, does it? Three days he is buried and the third day he rises from the dead and has defeated sin and death and hell and the devil and all of that in that motion. He has ascended to heaven. He has promised to return. Now, here's the thing that's so awesome about the gospel message. What, what, what gets you and I, you know, how, how do we join that program, right? I mean, this is awesome, like going to heaven and the glory of Christ. And how, how do we get into that? Well, if we take the Ten Commandments and we follow the Ten Commandments perfectly, then Jesus is going to say, you can come along with me. Well, no. no. That, that, that is a ministry of condemnation, as Paul's described it there. Essential, essential, all part of God's process to what? Bring us to the place where we realize there's nothing I can do. I can't save myself. I can't justify myself. I can't make myself whole. I can't get rid of my sin myself. That is why Jesus had to come and suffer and die and rise from the dead, because he's the only one that can do that for us. So the good news of the gospel is there's nothing you can do. Christ has done everything for you. What you need to do is respond in faith to him and believe in him. And put your confidence, not in yourself, not in your own effort, not in what I can do, but put your confidence in Jesus Christ. It's him, and it's him alone that can save me. And I trust in him. And I believe in him. I just surrender myself to him. And in that moment, there is forgiveness from God. There is eternal life given to us. There is the promise of heaven. That is all God's plan to redeem us. And all of that, and there's so much more, but all of that is kind of this light of the gospel. It's the light of that truth. That now, what person, logically speaking, 
would not want that. Have you ever shared with people the gospel and, 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 and it's like they're right there and it's something has just blinded them, right? And from our perspective, it's like, why wouldn't you believe that? What is stopping you? It's like the obvious yes for those of us that have come to Christ, it's the obvious yes. But for those that are not, who don't see it, the light, so to speak, they are blinded to it. Remember, uh, well, I was going to say a brother. I wish he was a brother. A couple that came to a Christianity Explored study that we did at Lamab years ago. Long story short, she came to Christ, is walking strongly with the Lord to this day. He, her husband, shared the gospel, and, and Jackie and I spent a lot of time with this couple outside of the Christianity Explored. We built this relationship with them. We spent time with them. Anyway, she comes to the Lord. He, I remember so clear, conversations with him, and he's so close to getting saved. I remember one day he came to our home. Jackie will remember this. And he sat in her living room, and, I, and I, I won't mention his name, but I said, are you okay? Because he looked like he was ill. And he said, I feel sick to my stomach. I said, do you want to? I thought he was literally physically sick to his stomach. He says, no, no, it's, he goes, it's because of what I'm going to tell you. And he says, I can't, I don't know how he worded, I can't get saved or I can't trust Jesus. And I just, I know I'm just telling you, I've thought about it. And it's like, it's like everything in me wanted to say, what is, what are you doing? And I wanted to pull him over the line. But he was, he was counting the cost and in his mind, he was not prepared to pay that price to be a follower of Jesus Christ to this day. I think he still is in that place. He came to the visitation for our son when he died back in March, and I saw him. That's the last time I've seen him. They're blinded. It, it, literally, that word blinded means to darken the mental discernment. That's what it means. It is like, it is not just like a, on the eyes, it is that too, but it is the mind that can't see or grasp. If you look at the root of that word, it's interesting. The root of the word that that word blinded comes from has to do with smoke. And as I thought about that, I thought how smoke, you know, you have fire and there's smoke and it's billowing and it, and it, it, and it makes everything misty and hard to discern or hard to see. And so all these metaphors tied into these words being blind, they're blinded. They can't see the light of Christ. And then Paul says this, he says, that the God of this age has blinded their minds. The God of this age is, he's not referring to the Lord here. The one true God. Of course, I think you know who he's referring to. He's referring to the devil. It's interesting, eh, that he calls him the God of this age. It is, notice it is the God of this age, right? If I could put it this way, he's the God of this world, of this life, of the temporal right here. It's like he has a realm and a dominion. We're not going to get into all that today, but there's some influence that he has in this world over people. He still has it. As I reflected on this idea that he is the God of this age, and I thought about being blinded, what, what does the enemy use to blind people to the gospel and to coming to Christ and to saying, I want that? There's a lot of things he uses. I think he uses material possessions and prosperity, right? 
It, it's like people that have everything in terms of this age, it's like, I don't need God. Like, what do I need God for? Life is good. Life is great, right? And it's like life is now, and I've got everything, and I'm just get, getting all I can get. Material possessions and prosperity can blind people to their need for Christ. The distraction of work can do that, and leisure activities, where it's like, I got no time for God. That's great for you if you want to run, or run around in church and go to Bibles. I got no time for that. I'm too busy doing other things. I'm enjoying my life. I'm not interested. What about the philosophy or wisdom of man? And we could break that down in so many different ways, right? There's so many places we could jump off. But ultimately, these ways of thinking present to us this idea. I don't, I don't need to be saved from sin. What's sin? I mean, what is sin anyway? There's no sin. And if, even if it was, like, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm okay, I don't need salvation, then there's religion, right? And religion is kind of the other side of that coin. It's like, well, I, I've got problems, and I've got something. I've got to do something to get right with God, and so I'm going to do all these things to get right with God. But in, in all this religion, in all of the religion, it's like, well, this idea that there's only one way to God, well, that's crazy. There's so many ways to God, we just got to find our own way to get there. And then there's naturalism. I guess you could call it maybe we could tie evolution in with that. Ultimately, that there's no God, right? What are you talking about? God and sin and hell and all this stuff. Now, there's no God. There's no eternal realm. We are living in this age. This is it. This is all there is. You live and you die and it's over. And the God of this age has blinded people to think that way, skeptical minds. And then there's offenses, right, that happen in people's lives against religion and the church and the Christians, and they did this to me and they did that to me. And the enemy can use that to blind people's minds to the truth. All of these things ultimately that blind people to this thing that is so important, I have sinned and I need a savior. And when the Holy Spirit of God starts to penetrate the smoke, if you will, the haze into the heart and into the mind, and many of you will remember this in your life if you came to Christ later in life, and the spirit, your own spirit starts to get into this turmoil as that guy that sat on our couch in our living room, he was almost sick to his stomach because he was under conviction. I said to him that day, I said, the spirit of God is speaking to you. You're under conviction. As you know, you need to get saved. You know that you need Christ. And I think there's a sense maybe that he could see it for a moment, but he turned away from it. Here the idea is being blinded. They cannot see the glory of Jesus and the light of the gospel, and, and their, the gospel is veiled to them, as Paul says. It is like there is something over their eyes. It is veiled to those that are perishing who do not believe. And so they say no. And for you and I that know Christ, it's like, what are you doing? This is so for you, and yet they say no. Maybe you're here this morning and that's you. No. Like, you know, can, I, can I just say to you that there is nothing more serious in your life, more important in your life than to be ready to die and ready to meet God. Paul uses the word perishing here. You have no idea. If you are going to live past this day, you have no promise, no guarantee. And the moment you go from this life into eternity, the only thing that will matter then is that I have Christ as my Savior. That will be the thing. And the light of the gospel shines in. It's like God is saying, I've done everything for you. And I love you. 
and I want you to believe in me. Just trust me. Just turn to me. I'm going to end the, the last point here, the light of Christ shining in. The light of Christ shining in. So we talked about those that are blinded to it. Now it shines in. Those that it has shined into, the verse, verse 4, who's... God, who's, pardon me, whose minds the God of the sages blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Literally, that word means to beam down upon. It is the idea kind of of the light of the dawn. It's tied to that idea, sort of almost like the sun rising. What a beautiful picture, right? Of kind of like the salvation in terms of this metaphor of what happens in my heart and in my life when the light of Christ shines in. It is like the sun rising. And then you get to verse 6 and he says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, the word shine and shone, same word, just a different variation of it. It is the word Lampo in the Greek, Lampo, Lampo, like lamp, right? Yeah, like lamp. Literally means a torch. It is this idea of a, of a torch in the darkness. But here's this light shining in the darkness of this world, of my life, of what I'm dealing with, and the light of Christ shines into our hearts. Well, I love the way Paul describes it here. It is a loaded verse. We can't do justice to it all here. There's so much in here, but he says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to summarize it this way. That light reveals Jesus, reveals him. What we need is him. We need Christ. We need a Savior. Salvation is in a person. It is in a person. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. It is not a religion. It is not a system. It is not a set of laws. And you do this and that, and that makes you a Christian. It is coming to know that person. It is coming to know Jesus Christ. That is what makes us Christians in the true sense of what it means to be a Christian, to know Christ, to know God, to follow him, to live for him, to be surrendered to him. It is faith in a person that saves us. And when that light shines in, it's not about anything I can do or an old system or any religion or law or anything. It is just Jesus that I need when that light shines in. It transforms us, doesn't it? So many of you could testify to that day. Maybe there was for you, it was like this moment where the light metaphorically speaking, I'm not saying like literally this physical light, but the light of the Spirit of God shining in the light of Christ in your life. It's like in a moment you saw it, what you didn't see before. And for all of us, there was a moment, but for some of us, maybe it was more of a gradual process of a light and a light and the glory and a little glory and a little glory. But at one day, at one point, that light penetrated the heart and we knew it was Jesus that we needed. And we believed in him and we trusted him. There's something that's important in all of this. Only God can do this. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts. What is he talking about there? He's talking literally about the light of creation. If we were to go back to Genesis 1 and verse 3, God says, let there be light. There was a creation word that God spoke, and the light shone into the darkness. Here he's taking that example out of the Old Testament, and he's saying it's like kind of like God does the same thing in your heart. When the light of Christ shines in, you become a new creation in Christ. 
You see things differently. There's a, there's a transformation. I'm not saying, please don't think I'm saying that from that day on we walk perfectly. We know we don't, right? And there's still a process of sanctification, but our life changes at that point. We see something and we know something that we never knew before, and only God can do this. God commands the light to shine out of the darkness, and he shines into our hearts. Whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a minute. Then we start getting into all the debate stuff, right? We get into the whole sovereignty of God and the will of God and salvation, and it's only that. Or, or then we get into, well, does man have a free will? And, 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 we, and, and those of you are not going to get bogged down in that, but you know what I mean? We start you know, going down all these rabbit holes about how it works. Can I just say to you, the Bible presents both. The Bible presents a God that is sovereign. And without that God working in your heart and mind, we would never have gotten saved. He sent his son. He does all the work. He takes all the initiative. So all the glory goes to him. But I absolutely believe that we have a will to respond to that light as it shines in. God shines the light. Will we respond to it? Will we turn to it? I think there's a thing here practically for us, too, in terms of reaching out to people that don't know Christ. We need to walk in a way that testifies to him. We need to witness. We need to work for the Lord, we need to work in reaching out to people around us, whatever way God may have equipped us to do that. But at the end of the day, it's not you and I that will save anyone. It's only God. It's only him and the spirit of God. And that light shines in. And so we need to pray and pray and pray and do our work and do our part and do the thing that we're called to do. But ultimately, we understand we leave the results with God. I want to end with this thought. I'm going to end with this. That phrase, the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. And in salvation, in that moment when the light shines in, it's like we see him in a different way, right? But, but, but I want to just go a little bit beyond that in, in closing this morning. Think, think of how the face of Moses reflected God's glory, and he didn't even get to look on the face of God, right? Remember, it was just his back, and God had his hand on him, and, and yet his face was reflecting that glory. Think, think about how the face of Jesus, in contrast to Moses, radiates God's glory from within, it's like not something external that shined on him for a little while and his face glowed for a little while, whatever that looked like, and Moses wore that veil. No, this, in Christ, it is the glory of God within him. We talked about the glory of God last week. The glory of God in him literally radiates out of him. And as here Paul talks about a light in the face of Jesus Christ and the glory of God in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians or pardon me, verse 6 here, 2 Corinthians 4, it is really a metaphor that he's using here, but there are times, aren't there, in the Bible where we literally see Jesus' face shining. Literally. Mount of Transfiguration, we won't turn to it, Matthew 17, 2, it says, his face shone like the sun. What was it in that moment? The body, the physical flesh and blood body that veiled... The glory of God, who he was on the inside, it's like God says, I'm just going to pull that back just for a moment. Just for a moment. I'm going to let these guys see who he really is. And they were overwhelmed, right? With the glory of God, and they fall down before him, and they are afraid. We know they are afraid because Jesus comes to them, and he touches them, and he says, don't be afraid. It's okay. And they, for a moment, got to see the glory 
of Jesus Christ looking on that face as much as they could, I'm sure, hiding their faces from him when they looked on it, his face shining like the sun. Then there's another one, Revelation 1 and verse 16, and it's John who was there in the Mount of Transfiguration. Here he is on the island of Patmos in this beautiful picture of Jesus in his glory, and we don't have time to read it all. Many of you know the passage, but in verse 16 it says this, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I was talking with John about this eclipse that's coming and they're going to shut the schools down and all of that. You know, we, we know if we shouldn't look at the sun on a blazing hot day. It's right above us to look at it and open our eyes and to stare at the sun. That is not a good thing to do. We can't handle it. Just the sun and the physical sun. But I have to think in the moment when, when John saw him, what, is it, what does it say there? He fell at his feet as dead overwhelmed by what the glory of Jesus Christ as he looks on the face of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He says, yeah, that's where you belong. You stay down there. No, he comes alongside of him, and I love it, and he puts his hand on him. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's me. If we saw the glory of God in these old bodies, we would respond like John, like those disciples, like Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6. But brothers and sisters, there's a day coming, I want to end with this thought. We're going to see his face. We're going to see his face. Revelation 22 and verse 4 tells us that. We're going to look on the face of Jesus in all of his glory. I long to see the face of my son again. We have dreams, Jackie and I. I wish I had more. Maybe it's God's mercy to not flood my sleep with dreams of my son. But when I have these dreams of him, sometimes they're vague, but sometimes there was one in particular where I could see his face. And I remember being so overwhelmed and waking up and just sobbing. I got to see him just in a glimpse. It's just a dream. We look at the photo albums and we see the face and on our phone the videos and I look at his face and we have his pictures hanging up and there's no way I'm taking those pictures down neither of us we want them there because he's our son he will always be our son and I love to look on his face and there's a day coming there's a day coming and I prayed to God how it's going to be I don't know I've asked the Lord for a certain way but I'm going to see my son again I'm going to look on his face just to see his face to see him to be with him but nothing, nothing is going to be like looking on the face of Jesus, is it? And I think of my son and my dad and those that I know and love, and you can too, those that have gone ahead in heaven, and they're seeing the face of Jesus Christ, and they're looking on his glory. Brothers and sisters, someday we're all going to be there together. We know Christ. And we're going to look on the face of Jesus Christ. We're going to see his glory, the fullness of it. And it will, as I said last week, be the ultimate, final, complete, and total transformation of us into his likeness at that moment. I can hardly wait for that day. And I long for that day. Until then, until then, though, until then, as Paul would say, therefore, since we have this ministry, you have this I have this to look forward to. As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We don't quit. We don't quit. We keep going, faithfully serving him by his grace, by his mercy, until the day 
till the day we see him in his glory. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for this hope, for this ministry as Paul describes it, Lord, and all that's entailed in these verses that we have read, all of it, God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of everything. He is all and all. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as he describes himself to John on that island. Father, there's a day coming we're going to look on the face of Jesus Christ. So strengthen us and encourage us, Lord, as Paul says, we, we don't quit, we don't faint, we don't give up, we keep going. By your grace and in your grace and in your strength, Lord, may we faithfully serve you and live for you until the day until the day that we see you. And so, God, I pray for your encouragement for my brothers and sisters. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here, anyone listening to this message, whether here or online, Lord, that does not know Christ, and that light is shining, and, and maybe they're going to turn away, they're going to count the cost, God, I pray that that light would break through. And they would see by your spirit, they would see the glory of God. It would draw them to Jesus Christ, and they would trust in him. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.